I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. Look, I get it. With everything we've been through since March of 2020, it's understandable why people may want to act like infectious disease experts. All the testing, masking, and quarantining created new routines and adjustments on how we live our day-to-day lives. So when monkeypox entered the fold this past summer, a lot of us were left shaking our heads, wondering what now? And when will we find some relief from public health emergencies? Now, monkeypox is not as dangerous as COVID-19, so let's make that clear off the bat. There's a lot of misinformation about it circulating, and there's a growing stigma around it, especially for our LGBTQ communities. Later this hour, we're going to clear that up for you and get answers that you need and the resources you need as well. Tweet us your questions at thisisnashville or email thisisnashville at wpln.org. But first... Vibrations are high at Nissan Stadium. It's the opening game of the season for the Tennessee Titans. What started out as a rainy day has given way to some sunshine and warm temperatures. Great football weather and a perfect way to get people like Tammy Leach into the stands. I haven't been to an NFL game in a tremendously long time. So just the energy and seeing the players and everybody's hype for the first game of the season, it's, it's awesome to be here. Fans like Chuck Cardona, are just happy it's finally football season. You know, last year, pandemic, masks, and everything, year before that, we didn't even go to a game. So this feels like a little bit of normality. And so my wife, you know, when it's football season, it's like, ah, I know I've lost you for a while. It's like, no, but you know. The Titans are leading the New York Giants 13 to nothing at halftime as acclaimed hip hop group, 3-6 Mafia, takes to the field. Beautiful. Love it, man. I mean, for the rain to stop right when it did, for us to have this much time. And I mean, 3-6 Mafia performing. I'm from West Tennessee. So, I mean, it, it don't get no better than this, man. I mean, it's real Tennessee. That's Sean Harmon, whose name may sound familiar. I rode shotgun with him for our show back in May. Of course, there are plenty of day one fans here, like Tyler Hirsch. Me and my father have been ticket holders since day one. We actually got the opportunity to meet Amy Strunk today. She came to our tailgate. I was like... You know what? That's why we're ticket holders, man. You know, people like that. She owns a team. She come out, get to meet people like us. That's cool. As with any fan base, everyone seems to have the secret key to success. BP says he's got it figured out. It starts with the old line. If you're going to get Derrick Henry them yards, you've got to have the offensive linemen stand on the same page, knowing their plays, knowing the snap count, knowing their blocks. Expectations are high for this season after last year's playoff letdown. Super fans like Elizabeth Schwartz and Eliza Hill want more. I do expect greatness. We have Derrick Henry. We have a great defense. We have Kevin Byardley in our defense. So that's really exciting, I think. Yeah, I'm very passionate about it. <laughs> Biggest Titans fan you'll ever meet right here. <laughs> I see us in the Super Bowl. So clear. I see it. Those expectations will have to be adjusted because the Giants came back to win 21-10 as Titans kicker Randy Bullock missed a 47-yard field goal to win the game. Here with me to take a look ahead at the Titans' 2022 season is David Beauclair. He's been covering the Tennessee Titans since 1998, and he's the publisher and editor of All Titans Fan Network for Sports Illustrated. David, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you, Halil. How are you today? I'm doing all right, my friend. How about yourself? 
I'm doing great, thanks. Excellent. All right, so let's review Sunday's game. What did you see from the Titans in their season opener? Uh, you know, a little bit of a uh, little bit of sloppy play, uh, a little bit of I don't know if it was a an emotional or just a uh, a functional letdown. But uh, you know, they, they started off the first first five or six minutes of the game were as good as you could hope to start a season. It, it, offense, defense, special teams all did something better than average to spectacular. And, uh, and there was, there was sort of this sense that, okay, this is, this is going to be easy today. And then it, uh, it, it didn't get easy. Uh, it got a lot harder as they went. It was, it, you know, almost like trying to, to cut through a pineapple, I guess, if you will. And then, uh, mm. then when, when the game was on the line at, at a time where we've seen this team, do so well in, in these situations the last couple of years they they did everything they typically do except make the kick at the end of the game and uh and, and you you know everybody who's a fan ends up walking away disappointed now let me correct myself i said the giants won 21 10 actually the score was 21 20 and like you said you know the first half things were going the titans way but things changed in the second half where they were outscored 21 17 what did you notice about the performance after halftime yeah, it, it they they just didn't make plays when they needed to, and particularly you know the offense on uh, on third down. They had a number of third and short situations, you know, third and four, third and two, third and one, that kind of thing. And and coaches will tell you ad nauseum that you want to be in third and four or less. That you know that that's a that's a go situation for the offense, and they they didn't convert in those situations. One you know, one time they had a dropped pass, another time they had a, a sort of a funky play call that that has some fans up in arms. Uh, defense defense didn't uh, didn't hold up the way it needed to. Uh, most of the day there was uh, there was there was a big interception by safety Amani Hooker in the end zone in the fourth quarter that you felt like at that time okay. That was the Giants' last gasp. The Titans have uh, avoided a collapse here, and and they're they're going to get through this thing okay. But uh, but it didn't work out that way either. And and the, you know the, the the defense did give up a, a few big plays. Like it, it was interesting in the first half, the New York Giants had 133 yards of total offense within the first five minutes. I think it was maybe the first six minutes and two seconds of the second half. They had a 68 yard run and a 65 yard touchdown pass, which was 133 yards exactly on those two plays right there. And uh, you know, another thing coaches will tell you ad nauseum is you can't give up big plays on defense. And, uh, and that's what the Titans did. And it cost them. And, you know, you're talking about third down conversions, third and short, and that just leans perfectly to star running back Derrick Henry, who's arguably the team's best player, if not one of the best running backs in the NFL. But he's coming off an injury that kept him on the sidelines for most of last season. Are you confident that he can return to form? Yeah, it, it, it's a really good question. Derrick Henry has a lot going against him in terms of trying to be the running back he was in 2019, 2020, and, and the first part of 2021. Uh, one of those things is he has, he has had an awful lot of carries. There is a, uh, there, there are those who cover the NFL nationally who will tell you that the rule of 370 is, is undeniable. And, and that says that any running back 
who carries more than 370 yards in a season is going to experience a significant fall off after that. And that is based on a lot of running backs who have done it. Well, Derrick Henry was, was, over 370 in 2020 was on his pace was on a pace for well more than that last season and, and sure enough he got injured had to miss the the, the final nine games of the regular season so then, then you add into that the, the nature of his injury which was a broken foot mm-hmm. and that required some i think it's four or five screws plus a metal plate to be put in there that you know for for someone who does what he does that that is that that can be a debilitating injury. Now, anyone who who follows Derrick Henry on Instagram will will tell you Derrick Henry is far from debilitated. He, uh, nope. you know, his workout videos are are legendary. Yes. They, they are so much fun to watch. I mean, and and there is this sense that if that if anybody is physically able to overcome these factors. Derrick Henry is that guy. Um, the The game against the Giants, I would say, was inconclusive one way or the other. He had uh, he, he had some runs where he looked fast and and looked as good as normal. There was one run in the second quarter. It, it ended up being a four yard gain, but uh, a Giants linebacker hit him up high and and really just knocked him to the ground. And it was the kind of hit that you almost never see Derrick Henry take. And, Mm -hmm. and it it really caught my attention when it happened. And and it's, it's worth watching going forward that if, if he, if he takes one or two of those kinds of hits a game going the the rest of the season, then, then you, then you'll know, He's not. He, he's not really the same back he was. If if you don't see that sort of thing happening, then I think you can say, okay, this guy got lucky. You know, everybody everybody does that every now and then. Uh, it, it happens, but uh, it, it, it's really it's really going to be one of the most interesting and one of the most important parts of this Titan season is is how good Derrick Henry can be relative to what he was because they need him to maybe not be as good. In, in some ways, they kind of need him to be better than he's ever been. Well, let me ask you about that real quick. We only have a couple minutes left. We're looking at Ryan Tannehill, who threw for 266 yards and two touchdowns after admittedly not really having a great game in the divisional round of the playoffs last year. In May, the Titans, the Titans drafted rookie Malik Willis out of Liberty University in Virginia, who showed flashes of playmaking ability, but he's not quite ready. What do you think all of this means for Tannehill's future with the team? Yeah, it, it th- this whole season feels like a transitional year, I think, for the Titans. You know, they, they've had a really good run here of five straight winning seasons, four playoff appearances, two straight division titles, three playoff wins. You know, get to the conference championship game following the 2019 season. But uh, uh, it, it, it also, they also did really well in the draft where the game against the Giants, they played eight rookies, which is mm-hmm. the tied for the most they have ever played in their in their week one game. Uh, since they've been in Tennessee and, and one who didn't play even was Malik Willis. And, and he's a guy that they have, they have really big, big plans for the whole preseason felt like doing everything they could to get Malik Willis ready to be the number two quarterback. And I, and I think next off season and preseason is going to be all about making sure Malik Willis is ready to be the starter. Now, whether the Titans, decide to cut Ryan Tannehill after this season, which they would 
that they can afford to do from a salary cap perspective, or if they wait to see how Willis develops during the offseason, then maybe trade him closer to the start of the regular season. I don't know, but it, but it feels very much like the end of Ryan Tannehill's time and the end of, for, for maybe several other notable veterans, that as this rookie class sort of led by Malik Willis will, will sort of really start to take over and, and lead this team into sort of a new era going forward, you know, the, the goal for the Titans is to make this transition without having to take a step back either this year or next and, and kind of keep the winning ways they've had. But that's uh, a lot of times that's easier said than done. Well, we got like a minute left with that said, what are your predictions for the Titans? And do you see them as real Super Bowl contenders in 2023? I, I don't see them as real Super Bowl contenders because I don't think they got better anywhere except maybe one position group, maybe inside linebacker, but uh, you know, their wide receivers are not as good. Their offensive line is not as good and, and their best players there are older. Ryan Tannehill, you know, is who he is. The, the, the defense is, is really good, but uh, you know, they lost Harold Landry to an injury right before the start of the season. He's been one of their best players on defense. So I, I don't see them as a as a Super Bowl contender. But I, I have told people I think they'll go nine and eight, which mm. which doesn't sound great. But given the nature of their division, it might still be enough to to win the division again and get them to the playoffs, which then when, once you're in the playoffs, you have a chance and, and you see what happens from there. Yeah, the NFC South has a division with no one wins, two teams tied, two teams lost. That is David Beauclair, publisher and editor of All Titans Fan Nation Network for Sports Illustrated. David, thanks so much for being here and tighten up. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're bringing you a special Citizen Nashville episode all about monkeypox. What questions do you have about the virus? How about the vaccine? Tweet us at This Is Nashville or email us at thisisnashville at wpln.org. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. We've talked a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you a special hour we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions, round up resources for you, and make sure our leaders hear your needs loud and clear. Today, we're talking about monkeypox. I need some of that right now. Yesterday, Metro Public Health hosted their first major monkeypox vaccine clinic at the Lentz Public Health Center. I mean, we had 300 plus open slots originally when we posted this, and so we were expecting this kind of a crowd, and we don't really haven't had anybody that hasn't shown up. That's Gil Wright III. He's the interim chief medical director for Metro Public Health. He said he's happy with how last night's event went, and he's hoping to host another one as soon as possible. We're glad that we've got the uh, vaccine available and large enough quantities we can start to do this now routinely. We'll be holding an event uh, with some of our other partners in the community um, in the near future, and we'll continue uh, as we've got vaccine available. What do we know about monkeypox? 
It is highly contagious for sure. That means protection is key in preventing its spread. Now we're joined by members of our community to hear about their concerns and what they'd like to see done so that we can all stay safe. With us now is Brenda Waybrandt, co-founder of Rock Music City, an organization that protects service industry workers, LGBTQ community advocate Desiree Arista, and Belmont sophomore Tonita Ricones. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. So, you know, I want to start by getting a sense of what you all have heard about monkeypox. Desiree, do you know anyone who's had it? Yeah, I've had a, a few friends that have shared their experience uh, with it. Um and just some of their frustration around not having access to vaccination, to treatment, mm-hmm. and the fact that it took a couple of days for them to even get access to a test, uh, to get access to medicine. Um, and it's, you know, it's a shame, um, but I know that depending on where you live in this part of the country, uh, that there's something different. I traveled all last year and I got really firsthand experience to see how different communities, different states handle different things. And um, when I came back to Tennessee, it was very um, prevalent of how um, slow, I guess, Tennessee is to, to take on some of these issues. Um, or it's, it has to do with the politicalization of it, um, you know, what the climate is here. Um, but, yeah, there's been some folks that have had that. Um, and because there isn't as, as much conversation about it, they're, they've been so willing to share their story and also just share information about where they can get vaccinations within their own uh, smaller communities. What worries are they sharing about getting treatment? The fact that um, it, it, they're not able to get it. Um, mm. And that depending on who your provider is, you know, if there's shame and stigma around it, um, that it's just not been available. And I know that it's in limited supply um, because of, you know, what's going on, the, the availability of it from a federal standpoint, um, and that it's almost like it's being kind of c- kept close to, to the chest. So the concern is just actually getting quick access to the meds that can help um, shorten the length of time that you are suffering from the pain of it. Mm. Now, Tanita, what are the conversations like on Belmont's campus? To be honest, I feel like we should have a lot more conversations going on. I'm uh, the publicist for uh, Belmont University's uh, Bridge Builders, which is our LGBT club. And uh, I'm thinking potentially during one of our um, group meetings, we could discuss more about monkeypox and how it's affecting our community specifically. It is primarily affecting gay cis men, but that would, to me, like a big problem is the stigma surrounding that and thinking like the ignorance of, oh, it's just for, you know, gay men. And that means like nobody else should care about it. And it's like, no, it's not at all. It's, uh, it can literally affect anyone. It's been affecting people, uh, constantly. So I think it's definitely something we should talk about more. And someone who's an LGBT person, myself an advocate, um, it's definitely something, a conversation that I can want to continue to have on campus and bring awareness to, but not without any stigma, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, Brenda, in 2020, you co-founded Rock Music City to take care of service industry workers through the COVID-19 pandemic. Along comes monkeypox this past summer. Did that make you feel like, man, this is happening all over again? It totally does. Um, In 2020, you know, we didn't know a whole lot about COVID. It was a new virus. Um, But monkeypox, we have a lot of history and understanding there. Um, And we know that 
Um, when people in labs handle monkeypox, they are donned up in personal protection gear. And it, it just blows my mind that we are being told to just keep our heads down and go to work and not be given the full picture of information in order to make um, appropriate choices for ourselves, you know, and that these communicable community diseases are being one-offed as, you know, individual responsibility. And we're not going to solve anything when we just look at something as an individual problem. Now, obviously, you know, our service industry workers are in constant exposure to people. What concerns do you have about monkeypox? Yeah. So monkeypox isn't just spread by um, physical touch. It can be spread if somebody has open wounds and those get on a soft surface, like think about bed sheets in a hotel or, you know, uh, linen napkins in a restaurant or, you know, even upholstered seats um, out in public. And monkeypox has a long incubation up to 30 days and a long mm. isolation period afterwards until all of the lesions are healed. And that can take up to you know, 30 days plus, and we don't have paid leave. That's we're preempted in Tennessee from, from mandating paid leave from our work. And so we're going to tell people that if they get sick with this extra communicable disease, they have to just stay at home without any money and no way to pay their bills. Restaurant workers don't get money unless we're in the work. Now, Desiree, you work in healthcare for a healthcare marketing company called Revive. I can imagine that there's a protocol for talking about monkeypox. What approach are companies like yours taking when sharing information about monkeypox? Yeah, it's about sharing what is, um, you know, the messaging around the stigma. Um, and like was mentioned before, uh, right now, a lot of folks consider it or worry about it being considered like an STI. Um, but it's more about sharing as much of this as possible, the facts as we know them. Um, similar to the COVID outbreak, um, there was very little that we knew up front. So there was a lot of fear. Um, and a lot of the tactics that you do to, you know, take caution where you're washing your vegetables and all that good stuff. Uh, whereas today it's like getting that information about like what is safe, um, what are things people can do to protect themselves. And especially knowing that queer folks are a communal uh, folk, we like to spend time in community with one another. So it's like talking about that, how you can be safe with one another and be aware of this. And as we learn through COVID, how to um, live within our pods and like live and make choices based on what's greater for our community. You know, those are the kinds of things we want to make sure that we're getting out across um, to our communities. I should say later this hour, we're bringing in a medical expert to break down everything you need to know about the infection and how to prevent it. If you're just tuning in, this is Nash this is Citizen Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about monkeypox with members of our community. What questions do you have about monkeypox? Tweet us at This Is Nashville, and we'll get the answers from our experts later this hour. So there's been a lot of misinformation about this disease, similar to what we saw with HIV and AIDS. And we're going to address those more directly later in the hour. But Desiree, as an advocate, what are your concerns about the spread of this stigma? My concern is just that fear of the growing um, homophobia that could come from this that did arise during HIV. As we saw during COVID-19, there was a rise of anti-Asian hate um, because of the sentiment that, you know, this uh, generated from um, Asian countries. But that's the concern is that there will be this fear based off of not having enough knowledge and understanding that like, oh, well, you went to a pride event or a large event where there are huge amounts of queer folks. I don't want you in my home because I don't want me and my family to be exposed to, to monkeypox. And that's just not 
that's not true. So we want to make sure that we're not having that kind of stigma, that fear, and which could lead to violence. Tanita, what does does what Desiree is saying does that resonate with you at all? Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. The constant shame and stigma that LGBT people have to go through is constantly getting worse. And with monkeypox and the way trans kids have been treated, um, it just seems like sometimes it feels like there's no hope, you know? So something like getting more advocacy out and making people aware that like, hey, you know, this is not just a gay virus or something like that, or have get that mindset out of people's head. This is this is a regular virus that people need to be aware about and that anybody can get. So yeah, that advocacy is really important to me, especially for our community. Well, how can these myths and stigmas, how can they be dispelled? Desiree, help us out. About getting as much information out as possible. Um, the feeling that this is a, something that only affects you know, gay men is not true. And so when you have something where only maybe a a minoritized group of folks are affected, then it's not talked about on a mass scale. But having more of that information out, um, because a lot of times this is, you know, yes, que queer folks in a sense that um, the regulations around who's getting or having access to the vaccination is like, oh, you know, are you a male that has sex with men? It's like, well, it's all about who's a part of your social and sexual networks. Uh, and within the queer community, there is a lot of sexual freedom. And so there is a mix of folks, but the more that we can get information out, grand scale, I think this can help with um, some of the myths. And last count, as of about a week ago, Metro Health said that there were about 100 reported cases of monkeypox in Davidson County. But it's important to note that about half of those people have recovered and are no longer actively infected. So really, it's not a lot of cases at the moment. Brenda, what types of precautions would you like to see regardless of the number of confirmed cases? Well, I mean, you know, we still have a lot of active COVID cases also, um, and uh, something even as simple as wearing a mask out in public would help a lot of people stay healthier overall. Um, but again, our state has preempted us from doing even basic um, basic safety precautions as a mask mandate. We can't do that here in Nashville because our state said, no, not allowed. Um, but again, just getting more information out there and having actual public health campaigns about the information from monkey monkeypox um, information. And we've seen with COVID that getting it to local leaders and commu local community leaders helps get that information out to community members who need it most. Um, and I feel like sometimes that that's th the step that's missed is really integrating our local community leaders and, and realizing that we have a lot of different neighborhoods and a lot of different ethnicities. And, and we have to rely on getting information to the people who need it most by the people that are trusted by those folks. Mm -hmm. Now, now, Tonita, you, earlier you mentioned about what you want for your campus community, but what would you like to see your school officials do at Belmont? Well, one option that I could think of was potentially maybe giving access to the monkeypox vaccine, similar to what they did with the COVID vaccine or the flu vaccine, which I think that they have going on right now. But potentially maybe giving access to monkeypox vaccines for college students at Belmont is something that I think would be really helpful. And and just maybe um, partnering with bridge builders to do something to uh be able to get rid of the stigma around it. And and I think um, 
giving away vaccines would be a really good first step for us. So and maybe partnering with bridge builders to do something like that. We're always open to do anything with Belmont and anything to help the queer community. In our next segment, we have two experts to answer questions from the community. I'd like to get questions from you all as well. You know, Tonita, what would you like to ask our experts? Um, is it absolutely necessary right now in this moment in time to maybe even get the vaccine? I, it's something I would like to do as a queer person myself, but is it necessary for the general public? Is it that much of a threat right now? That's kind of where I'm at. Brenda? Yeah, I would just really be curious about what kind of um, what kind of ways can we get this information out to our community a little bit better? Like, how can we make sure that vulnerable people are informed and also that it's not stigmatized as just a, a, a disease that affects the LGBTQ community? And Desiree? For me, it would be about the treatment. Um, you know, this is something that's with us now, will be with us and getting that fast access to getting treatment so that you can live a healthier life afterwards and not have to sit and deal with the pain that can come from it. That was LGBTQ community advocate Desiree Arista. She was joined by Brenda Waybrandt, co-founder of Rock Music City, and Belmont sophomore Tonita Ricones. Thanks to you all for joining us today. Really appreciate having you on. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we will invite a few local experts to answer your questions about monkeypox. It's not too late to send them in. What concerns do you have about the virus? Tweet us at This Is Nashville or email us at thisisnashville at WPLN.org. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and this is Citizen Nashville. It's become abundantly clear that how we talk about monkeypox matters. As the infectious disease started to spread across the globe and here in the United States earlier in the summer, a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding spread with it. Although anyone can get affected, the infected, the numbers appeared to suggest that men who have sex with other men were most the most impacted by this disease, which led a lot of folks to mistakenly think that monkeypox is an STI that left a lot of public health officials asking, how can we spread awareness without making the same mistakes we made through the HIV AIDS crisis, which of course caused widespread disinformation and discrimination against gay and bisexual men. So today we're gonna to talk about how to spread that awareness and clear up any confusions out there. Plus we'll answer your questions about how to protect yourself and others against the disease here in Nashville. Joining me now are Delray Zimmerman, the director at the Office of Diversity Affairs and LGBTQ Health at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and Dr. Sean Kelly, an infectious disease doctor at Vanderbilt. Delray, Dr. Kelly, thank you both for joining us. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Khalil. All right, so just to reiterate, this is not only a disease that affects men who sleep with other men. So Dr. Kelly, help us out. Who can get monkeypox. So I think we have to, you know, give ourselves credit for putting up with two years of the COVID pandemic and realize that our brains are conditioned around COVID right now. You know, we're still 
thinking about social distancing and six feet and um, airborne transmission of a virus. So I just want to make it very clear that monkeypox is not COVID. All of those, um, you know, very serious precautions that we that we've taken really don't apply uh, to monkeypox. There are certainly knowledge gaps in what we, you know, know about how monkeypox is transmitted, but it's looking like it really does require significant skin-skin contact with an infected person to to transmit. So we really have not been seeing airborne transmission or respiratory transmission transmission through the air. Uh, we really haven't been seeing transmission from inanimate objects or, or fomites, you know, so sharing pens or doorknobs or uh, sitting in a chair in a doctor's office waiting room. Um, it really does take that significant skin-skin contact. Um, so I think knowing that I can help a lot of people, um, in, you know, realize what their risk factors are on a daily basis. When is the virus most contagious? So there are still a lot of knowledge gaps here. Um, we know it's very contagious when somebody has active lesions. Um, even when those active lesions have begun to scar over, even the scars have high levels of virus in them. And so those lesions, which pretty much throughout the evolution of, of their course have high levels of virus in them, um, are likely the major driver of transmission of monkeypox, but there may be, you know, asymptomatic transmission or asymptomatic shedding of virus that we just don't really know much about. Um, the question of whether or not this is an infectious disease is also kind of up in the air. You know, it's kind of a semantic question too. It, it mm. spreads by direct skin-to-skin -skin contact, which occurs during sex. But is this truly a sexually transmitted infection? Um, is this virus present in sexual bodily fluids? And if so, how does that impact transmission? I think there's a lot of answers we just don't really know yet. Okay, so what are the most common symptoms of the disease? This is uh, a disease that has um, given us a few surprises, I'll be honest. Um, we, as a medical community, really didn't have much experience with it until uh, until this current outbreak. You know, much of we what we knew about it was from medical textbooks. And medical textbooks um, showed us that there was a pretty uh, stereotypical and predictable course of, of symptoms. You know, a patient would get fevers, swollen lymph node, kind of flu-like symptoms, and then a, a, a pretty typical rash would appear. And all of these lesions would appear kind of at the same time and evolve at the same time as that person clears the infection. This outbreak is doing something different though. Uh, these symptoms have become pretty variable compared to what we thought we knew. Um, many patients are not experiencing a fever before the rash uh, pops up. Many mm -hmm. patients um, are having, are, are, are um, experiencing lesions appearing at different points throughout infection and the lesions are evolving at different rates throughout infection um, and we're seeing some some symptoms last longer than you know the two to four weeks that we thought it would so it's 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 highly variable uh, compared to what we thought we knew about monkeypox but i will say it is a much much milder strain of monkeypox uh, than the previous strains that have been described so the symptoms are highly variable and anyone can get it. But, you know, Delray, explain why we should pay attention to who appears to be at most at risk of getting monkeypox. Well, uh, you, the initial concerns have certainly been around uh, men who have sex with men. Um, but we do know that um, that anyone uh, anyone is susceptible 
to uh, to to contracting the virus. Um, so you know, back to some of the earlier points that that were made, I think that uh, some of the initial um, conversations about monkeypox has unduly stigmatized uh, the LGBTQ community, and I think that uh, the majority of the population. Um, is really unaware and not paying attention to risk. For example, I actually had a conversation with my mom last night about monkeypox, and she really was largely unaware uh, of um, you know uh, of what was happening uh, around it. And uh, you know, and I think that um, I think that's that's true for a lot of people. You know, speaking specifically for the LGBTQ community, I think it's really really important. Um, that our community feels uh, empowered uh, and have and have the resources that they need to be able to take care of themselves. We know that uh, LGBTQ people are more likely to delay care uh, because of previous instances of bias and discrimination, and 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 many folks don't have healthcare providers today. Our program can actually help uh, mitigate some of those concerns. We actually have a patient navigator. Um, uh, initiative so that LGBTQ patients can actually call or email us to find friendly and knowledgeable providers. And we provide that service uh, at Vanderbilt, and we also connect people to uh, healthcare resources uh, outside of Vanderbilt as well. Well, what can straight cis people like me do to help combat the stigma and spread of information? First and foremost, I think that if um, if you overhear uh, conversations being had that that negatively disparage um, uh, people in the LGBTQ community, please speak up. Um, you know, and inform folks about the science in that it is not uh, a sexually uh, transmitted infection, uh, and that indeed it can be passed from skin to skin um, uh, contact with anyone. Now, Dr. Kelly, have you encountered any patients who are worried about this stigma that monkeypox is carrying right now? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, so I, I'm the medical director of Vanderbilt Comprehensive Care Clinic, which is Vanderbilt's HIV treatment center. So uh, my day job is um, the, the clinical care of people living with HIV, who many of which have lived through the, the early days of the HIV epidemic, experiencing this horrible stigma for many, many years. And so we have to think about, you know, the reflections of that type of stigma in how we approach the monkeypox uh, outbreak. Um, you know, we think about the 80s and how HIV was sort of not discussed um, and really nothing was done until the infection spilled outside of the LGBTQ community. And think about how we're tackling monkeypox right now. Well, compared to that, we're doing much more. You know, we have a vaccine available. We're um, we're, we're, we're getting people on treatment, we're testing people, getting people diagnosed and working on messaging. I, I wish it had happened months earlier than it did. Um, but I think we, the health department, and when I say we as collectively as the, the healthcare society, um, are using some lessons from the, from the early days of HIV to appropriately, um, or at least as best we can, uh, tackle this current outbreak. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville. I'm your host, Khalil Lekelona. We're talking this hour about monkeypox and answering your questions. My guests are Vanderbilt infectious disease doctor Sean Kelly and Delray Zimmerman, director of diversity affairs and LGBTQ health at Vanderbilt 
University Medical Center. Now, let's talk about the vaccines. When they first came to Davidson County, it wasn't a lot, and they weren't available to everyone. Right, Dr. Kelly? That is right. Um, the vaccine existed before this monkeypox outbreak happened as part of a strategic federal stockpile uh, in case smallpox resurged. So the um, monkeypox virus is very similar to the smallpox virus. In fact, that whole group of viruses, orthopox viruses, um, are similar enough that immunity to one of them uh, generally portends immunity to the other ones. And so the current monkeypox vaccine we have really is a smallpox vaccine. And um, we had a limited supply as part of a stockpile at the beginning of this outbreak. And so that that uh, stockpile was sort of divided among states and other jurisdictions that had higher rates of monkeypox uh, cases. So Tennessee, we we were kind of late to the game you know, when it came to uh, accumulating monkeypox cases. And therefore, we got uh, a smaller stock of vaccine later than some other uh, jurisdictions like New York City that saw lots of cases earlier on. So where are we at today? Well, uh, production has accelerated. Uh, the vaccine is produced in Europe, um, and, and I believe it's in Denmark, I want to say. Um, but they've accelerated production of that vaccine. Uh, we have much more supply than we did before. And I think at this point, we can start to expect regular, uh, consistent supplies of vaccine to try to meet our demand uh, here in Tennessee. Okay, so, you know, Metro Health had their first vaccine drive last night, and it sounded well attended. What do you want folks to know about the vaccine? What is the effectiveness of it? Well, we um, we don't know is the answer to that. We don't know how effective this vaccine is to the current monkeypox strain. Uh, but based on studies from several years ago um, out of Africa, it seems to be or it seemed to be about 85 percent effective at preventing monkeypox um, uh, from those strains that existed in Africa at that time. Uh, we don't know the durability of the vaccine, but we know from the smallpox vaccination and, va and smallpox immunity that this immunity does tend to be pretty long lived. So we don't yet know um, if boosters are going to be needed. But I think what we know about smallpox immunity in prior studies from this vaccine is that it's very likely to be pretty effective, at least 85 percent effective, and that immunity is likely to persist for many years. And, and Khalil, if I may, I, I, I would like to congratulate the health department on a successful event. I actually went uh, last night and got my first round of vaccine, and it was a very, very easy uh, process. Uh, the the nurse who um, who administered um, the the vaccine, uh, very knowledgeable, answered all of my questions, um, and um, and so I just would encourage anyone um, to utilize existing resources who who are. Um, who are in the the current risk groups to go and get the vaccine. Um, the uh, health department is now making it much easier to access. We got a DM on Twitter from a listener who got their shot. They said, quote, it hurts a little, but better than monkeypox, end quote. Dr. Kelly, what can you tell people about the side effects of the vaccine? Um, well, they seem to be fairly mild. Um, and I'll I'll back up a little bit and tell you that there are two different ways of administering this vaccine. One is their traditional um, intramuscular uh, dosing. But we found that given the limited supply, um, by breaking the each vial into up to five more doses, 
we can administer what's called an intradermal dose. So instead of administering the vaccine into the muscle, we can use a much smaller dose into the skin, just underneath the skin, kind of like a tuberculosis test. Mm. Our skin has tons of immune cells. And as a result, we um, we likely are, are gaining the same amount of immunity with that smaller dose underneath our skin that we did with uh, intramuscular dosing. So to try to expand our, our current supplies, most jurisdictions are now doing the intradermal dosing. So the intradermal dosing, putting that, um, that vaccine just underneath the skin can cause uh, redness and uh, what's called induration or a bump underneath the skin, um, which may itch. It may be uncomfortable um, and it can persist for a few weeks, but should just go away um, over time. Uh, the people, though, that have a, um, a history of scarring, so keloid scarring, they should avoid the intradermal dosing because of the risk of scarring. Um, otherwise, uh, most people should be able to receive that uh, with, with fairly mild uh, symptoms. Now, can someone get the vaccine after they are infected? Well, we we don't know um, how long immunity lasts, so it's not it's not treatment. So uh, if somebody has an active infection, they should not get the vaccine. The vaccine really won't do much, as as, as far as we know. It has not been studied as as any way of kind of modulating the disease course. Um, but they likely will have uh, long-lasting immunity following infection. Um, but after infection, should they get a booster? That's just uh, one of our knowledge gaps that we have right now. Now, our previous guest, Tonita Ricones, is a Belmont student. She had a question for you all. She asked, is it absolutely necessary right now to get the vaccine? She said it's something she'd like to do as a queer person, but asks if it's necessary for the general public. Delray? Right now, the uh, authorities are relegating the administration of the vaccine to uh, uh, higher risk populations. Um, I don't think it is it is necessary uh, for um, uh, for the general general population to uh, get vaccinated. But we also have to be hyper vigilant about risk factors. And I think for folks who know that they might be uh, at higher risk as they are eligible uh, based on guidelines, I, th I, I think that they they seriously should consider it. OK, I want to talk about the steps individuals can take to protect themselves and others other than vaccination. Now, Dr. Kelly, you said you can still carry the virus in scars even after you've mostly recovered. That's pretty intense. What what can people uh, what can people do to prevent it if they have it? Like scabs. If I said scar, I apologize. I meant scabs. scabs. Okay, so yeah. So should should if so someone the, has it, should the they cover up their scabs? Yeah, yeah, they should. Uh, so while somebody has an active lesion, they should remain covered up, uh, try to avoid any physical contact with anybody who's uninfected. Um, so the, the duration of somebody being um, able to spread the virus is variable, but it's uh, once all of the lesions have scabbed over and those scabs have fallen off and there's healthy tissue underneath, that's when they can come out of isolation. Um, and that it, that's variable. It might be two weeks for some people. It might be four plus weeks for others. So the time of the symptoms is varies, as you're saying, right? It is, yep. Okay, and, so, then they, and therefore, the time that somebody is able to transmit to others is variable. All right. All right. You know, I want to dispel a few myths, and either of you can answer. It, you already said if air, monkeypox is an air, airborne illness, and that answer would be no. Is that right, Dr. Kelly? 
We are not seeing significant transmission through the air. Um, it just is, it has not been documented through this outbreak. Uh, there's, we have to recognize there are a lot of knowledge gaps, but we also have to look at what's happening right now. And we are not seeing people acquiring it from sitting next to somebody on a bus or on an airplane. Um, theoretically, yeah, there is a potentially, you know, a risk of airborne transmission if somebody's got significant face-to-face -face contact. At least that's what we're we're hearing from the CDC. But are we really seeing that in real life? Not so much. Okay. Okay. Now, you know, what steps can a per person take if they think they're infected? What should they do? Talk to their doctor. Um, so they need to get tested. If they think they're infected, they should talk to their doctor. Um, and if their doctor is unaware of how to get tested, talk to another doctor, talk to the health department. And Khalil, for folks who have challenges in finding a friendly and knowledgeable provider, again, our program can help with that. Uh, folks can call us at 615-936-3879 or email us at lgbtq.health at bumc.org. And we're, we will be happy to connect people with healthcare resources they need. Well, with that note, Delray, who is eligible for a vaccine right now? Um, right now, um, eligibility is um, is uh, specifically for uh, folks who are currently living with HIV or receiving medi medications to pre prevent HIV. Um, also, uh, uh, men who have sex with men and or transgender, gender nonconforming or non-binary uh, individuals who have had multiple sex partners or anonymous sex um, have been uh, diagnosed with a, a, a sexually uh, transmitted infection. Um, and there again, those living with HIV. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you very much for being here. I want to thank you both for giving us this information. It's something that we all need to consider. We were speaking with Dr. Sean Kelly, infectious disease doctor at Vanderbilt. He was joined by Delray Zimmerman, director at the Office for Diversity Affairs and LGBTQ Health at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Again, thanks to you both for being here. And we want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, after a tough few years with the COVID-19 pandemic or tornado and more, how are Nashville small businesses faring? Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Amir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekulona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. Thank you.